Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Are either one of you a fan of the Blues? Dan Nathan, I'll start with you. You know I am. B.B. King, the thrill is gone. I actually saw him live on many occasions in the 90s at the Blue Note here in New York. I saw him at the Hammersmith, at the Odeon Hammersmith in London back in 2000. You got to go deep. I I think he's looking for the Robert Johnson crossroads. It's interesting. Now, we don't rehearse, as you could probably tell. By the way, this is the On The Tape podcast. I'm Guy Adami. That was Dan Nathan. Danny Moses chiming in on going deep. Just a few minutes, Dan and I are going to speak to Ed Yardeni of Yardeni Research. Dan, as I will mention, he's on the Mount Rushmore of all things economists and strategists and all those types of fun things. Love Ed Yardeni. It's a great conversation. But Dan Nathan, spot on. In my head, you reside rent-free, as Chris Christie said about Donald Trump. The thrill is gone. B.B. King. Yes, because Danny Moses right now, in my opinion, the thrill is is gone in terms of this market. All the things that Danny Moses has been talking about, all the things that Dan Nathan has been waxing poetic about are seemingly coming to fruition right before our very eyes. And in homage to the great B.B. King, the thrill is gone. It's also Crossroads, Robert Johnson, right? Sold his soul to get where we are. Apparently, that's what they say. Yes, yes. So a lot of great music came from that. But yeah, listen, watching this market, the most surprising thing to me is 10-year yields. And we've talked about the leverage in the system, the potential ability of the brokers to potentially turn down that leverage with some of their clients. There was an article in the FT about that specifically is how much leverage is out there in fixed income. But it's not just U.S. rates anymore. Look at the rates in, in the U.K. and Germany, up 10, 15 basis points in a day. Japan, which by the way, a three or four basis point move in the 10-year in Japan is like 20 anywhere else because they're still trying to control it. We're approaching I think north of 75 basis points now in Japan. And that's what's making people very unsettled here is that not being able to point to anything tangible for the reason that rates are going up at the same time that oil is going up, which we've talked about is a tax on everybody. That's a regressive tax. No matter what your tax bracket is, you're getting hit the same. So a lot of things now, I think people are trying to fill in the blanks here. And I'll just cap that off by saying there is no chance for another Fed rate hike, in my opinion. And so that's priced into the market. I think we're down to a 17% chance at the next meeting. But interestingly enough, the higher for longer still is in the market here. And there is not a cut built in probably until at least June at this moment. So again, I think people are, are looking for answers right here. And I think they're looking at the 10 year. And if the 10 year yield does start to come in, that may be a fake buy signal for the yeah. S&P. But, but Danny, so. here's the thing. You say no chance. CME Fed funds tracker is pricing what? Uh, you said 17, 18% chance of a 25 basis point hike at the November meeting. I'll push back. If we have crude oil at 93 and that's on its way to 100, it likes those nice round numbers. And Guy, kudos to you because you've been all over that train. I've been fading that. And if we have a 10-year that as we are recording right now on Thursday midday-ish, it's 463. If that's on its way to 5%, the, the probability is going to go up massively. 
negatively. And here's the thing when we talk about, and I've been saying this now, I feel like for weeks that I feel like it's been deja vu all over again to late 2021, right around the same time. And we were feeling some similar sort of vibes. The major indices were acting fine. But if I look at my fact set machine here, and we've been talking about the concentration. Okay, fine. Apple and Microsoft have been correcting. All right. So this has been going on now for two months. They've broken those uptrends that have been in place since early this year, late last year, but look around at more economically sensitive names, okay? So if those were the beneficiary of all the excitement in and around AI and a flight to quality after the regional banking crisis, look what's going on in the transports, look what's going on in the airlines, look what's going on in retail. We could rattle off, and we have been rattling off dozens of names. These, some of these retailers look like they're literally going out of business, let alone Target closing stores because they can't defend them. Look at what's going on in discretionary. We've been talking about Nike and Disney and Starbucks. And you know what? Let's throw McDonald's onto that guy. Do you think that 260 level in McDonald's is important? And that's a staple. If you would say that would be a benefit of the trade down, look at industrials, look at the XLI. So all of these things are through their 200 day moving average. They're technically breaking down and we have an S and P that people still feel okay about, or a NASDAQ that people still feel okay about. We're going back to their 200 day moving average. And you tell me what sort of alarm bells are going to go off when we go through those. And just lastly, we've talked about this equal weight S&P. It's unchanged on the year. I think that says a lot. And then the Russell 2000, going back to this rate sensitivity and delinquencies and bankruptcies, the Russell 2000 basically backed flat on the year is saying that we are likely to have more credit problems in the not so distant future. Dan, I just want to push back on you now with the comment. I totally agree that oil higher for longer will work its way into inflation. But I think the impact on the consumer, you just described a lot of consumer discretionary names that are being impacted, right? Where we're seeing a slowdown. You're looking at the stock charts, you're looking at the earnings, you are seeing it play through. So I think the opposite. I actually think that the slowdown in the U.S. consumer will outweigh any risk that the Fed may see oil working its way in through the system. So I'm on the other side of that. And I think we are seeing in real time, and we're going to talk about some names here, CarMax front and center, someone that is exposed to higher oil prices hits their business, higher rates hits their business, consumer credit quality hits their business. It's a microcosm of what's going on here. And with all the strikes that are occurring, literally across the United States, including a somewhat strike in the U.S. government itself, if you want to call it that, if they do shut this thing down. I just see very little risk. And again, I'm not, Guy, you might have some opinions on that, but you've been saying we're going to break out and they're going to continue to go higher. If the 10-year yield continues to go higher, the probability of a hike in November is just going to go up, especially if these inflationary pressures, which you've been talking about, Guy, have been ticking up. And I'll just say one last thing here. Why are the staples, why do they act so badly? Guy, you mentioned this again and again over the course of this year, that there was just pricing power that they had, that they no longer have. Look at this XLP. Okay. This is this, the ETF that tracks the staples. It made a massive double top at about 78. It's trading at 68 and a half as we're recording right now. It's in an absolute free fall. I think investors are basically pricing in no ability to push through pricing anymore to a consumer that's getting tapped, Danny, for all the reasons you just met. The XLP, which I believe Dan made an all-time high in the spring of 2022. And as you mentioned, the consumer staples spider fund, I think it was north of 80 bucks, but it might've been right around $80 or so. Obviously, we cratered like many things did in the middle of last year. We have bounced since, but the fact that we can't get through those levels is alarming. And I got to tell you, just looking at the XLP, if you want to play that game, we better hold the lows we saw in October of last year, which comes in around 66 and a half. So that's something you have to watch, number one. I'm glad you mentioned energy. We've been talking about that. We were fortunate enough to have Vinny and Porter on they're clearly been bullish in energy. Danny, you as well. ExxonMobil, I think, made an all-time high earlier this week. You have the OIH continues to push higher. Valero's been a monster. Some of these levered names continue to go higher. And it's interesting. We find ourselves at a level in terms of crude oil with the move higher, where the Saudis are going to start to probably, no pun intended, take their foot off the gas, because there will be a point that crude gets to where you start to see demand destruction. And I think they're extraordinarily aware of that. So this sort of 93 to $100 level in crude probably is a sweet spot. So crude can go sideways for a period of time. I think energy stocks will continue. I ask you this, Danny Moses, the question, would you rather be an urban cowboy or the rhinestone cowboy? Like a rhinestone cowboy. That was a very good... So yes, that one, that of course being... If you remember the artist, let's see if how good are is you it, on this is one. Is it Glenn Campbell? It's the great Glenn Campbell. How I about thank that, you for that? Thank you. But I mentioned either cowboy because we had 
Mike Cow, not Mike Co. Mike Cow on our podcast a couple of weeks ago, and it was prescient that we had him, and it was timely because he mentioned these three things, this three-headed monster that's driving the market, the bond market clearly, the wrecking ball that is the stronger U.S. dollar, which I think people don't fully comprehend, but a stronger dollar, as counterintuitive as it may sound to our audience, is actually a bad thing. And then obviously the oil market, which continues to go higher. Those three things alone are reasons to be bearish here. And I'm glad, Dan, you mentioned the consumer as well. I'm sure Edgar Denny will have some thoughts on that, but consumer's not in a good spot here. And I think what we're seeing, the fact that Walmart continues to effectively make all-time highs as DollarGen, Target, Dollar Tree, Five Below, all these other names continue to make multi-year lows is alarming in a word. Yeah, and I'll take it away from the consumer too because we definitely spent some time with Ed on that. What about enterprise? Enterprise was supposed to be the thing. And when you look at just tech spending in general, I'm looking at my screens right now. I see Workday down 9% after a disappointing guide. This was a stock that late last year was trading $135. It traded as high just a couple weeks ago as 252. We're trading at 214. This is a company that trades three times and expected to have high teens growth. They just guided that down. So they're basically guiding for a deceleration. Micron guy, you were talking about it earlier in the week on Market Call. You were saying the ultimate in commoditized memory as it relates to demand. We know that demand's been weak for PCs and for smartphones and a whole host of other things. And there's only been interest in these high-end graphics chips to train these large language models and generative AI models. Look at Micron right here. This is a cheap stock. And they're going to be losing money for quarters now. And they're trying to put a decent spin on things. But this stock was also acting pretty well. And I look at the SMH in general, up nearly still 40%. And you look at what percentages of that gain is NVIDIA. It's like most of it. Like the rest of the sector is not participating anymore, especially with Taiwan Semi, which is the second largest holding there. So I just think that there's lots of tea leaves to be read. And I'm just going to put a bow on this conversation because I started with just deja vu all over again, man. It really does feel like the fall of 2021. And there's a lot of folks out there who are really cautiously optimistic about a soft landing. But the one thing that we haven't even mentioned yet is unemployment. And, and that's the thing to me, Guy, when you're talking about the consumer, if we start seeing that tick back up and some of the readings about insecurity, about wage growth at a time where we have this UAW strike and a whole host of other things going on with the workers, I just really feel like a lot of things are likely to come together. And let me tell you, if they shut this thing down this weekend, this could be the sort of catalyst that maybe that's why we're back at an 18 VIX or something like that. Dan Nathan, where did we meet Danny Moses? On the set of CNBC's Fast Money at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We did. And it was truly, it's one of the best days of my life. I consider Danny a dear friend now. And we did meet there. And I remember it like it was yesterday. So Danny Moses has become a participant of CNBC's Fast Money. He's also a viewer of CNBC's Fast Money. And he saw Halima Croft on our show the other night talking about oil and the weaponization in Russia and products and petroleum and all the different things. And again, if you listen to Porter, if you listen to Danny, if you listen to Vinny, these are things that they were saying not months ago, but years ago, and it's all playing out. Now, I'll say this. Fortunately for Europe, they had a mild winter last year. You know what? And that saved them in a, in a myriad of different ways, not least of which, by the way, on the huma humanity side of the equation. Hopefully, they'll be fortunate again this winter. But you know what? If you're counting on that, Danny, I think you're sort of grasping at straws because this energy market, things have not gotten better. In some ways, things are actually getting worse and you're seeing it with some of the products. Yeah. The natural gas over in Europe is spiking here. There's some issues with supply from around the world, obviously coming in. And here we are again, headed into the winter months, just a couple months away. And yes, October is supposed to be somewhat mild, but everyone's exposed. And to Halima's point, Russia being able to weaponize oil like they are, Saudi being able to fund all their projects, buy all their pro sports teams or leagues everywhere that they want. I think the low 80s, she thinks, is the all-in cost, I believe, for Saudi in terms of their budget per year where they need oil to be in terms to make money. So you're right. We certainly, there's going to be a, a point where there's demand destruction. I don't know where that's going to be, but here we are again. This has been going on now almost two years since we started this whole Russia Ukraine thing, this began you know, late in 21 when this thing we knew was going to happen. And here we are. And it's now I feel like things are potentially in a more precarious position than they were before because where we are in the cycle right now. And so all that in, I mean, looking around here, even Vegas is maybe striking on the culinary workers. So I won't be able to get that beer at the black tech table. You're not going to get a car. 
right? You got the, the screenwriters look like they're coming back, but the actors are still out. Again, the Washington shutdown, all this stuff going on, right? We talked about this for months and all these shows is labor is getting more power as we go. Wages are moving higher. That either has an impact on inflation because it works away in the system or it's a hit to corporate margins. And so I feel like we're right now at the cycle. And guys, remember, Dan just brought up the end of 2021. The biggest anomaly that entire year, if you guys remember, was the fourth quarter, what the market did that fourth quarter. It was the weirdest thing. It was completely unexpected. It made the setup in 22 even worse, potentially. Maybe we have the opposite this year. Maybe we get the sell-off in the fourth quarter of 23, which sets us up better for performance in 24. I don't know, but I believe that these higher rates for longer is having an immediate and prolonged impact on the consumer and the lag effect is no longer a lag effect of the Fed raising rates and inflation. It is here right now. And so hard to believe that third quarter earnings are about to start getting reported in two weeks. I feel like we just got through the second quarter and this is going to be, I think, the most important. I say it every this one in particular, though, and as people rotate to 2024 earnings and start to move valuations based upon that, I don't see this looking much better here. A number of things strike me, if you indulge me, fellas, for just a minute. I like the casinos as well. But I think, as some of you may know, I like playing the craps when I go to casinos. And years ago, I was at a casino, and I was drinking my scotch, my Johnny Walker Black, at the craps table. And I saw a gentleman, older gentleman, a few years older than I was, and he was drinking coffee. And I'm like, that's extraordinarily sophisticated. I will tell you that I've embraced that now. So when I'm at the craps table, I'll either drink my scotch or depending on the time of the evening, I'll drink my coffee. Never will drink beer because then you have to take a leak. And if you're on a heater, you don't want to have to get up. That's a little bit number one. Number two, and I want to show people that I'm on top of things, Taylor Swift's ninth album, studio album, was Evermore. Don't ask me how I know that. I just happen to know that. All of a sudden, everybody's an effing Taylor Swift fan, by the way. Amanda Diaz, who you've all come to know, told us earlier before we started shooting this that Apparently, this whole thing is a ruse. I don't know how to spell it, but she thinks the whole Taylor Swift, Travis Kelty thing is fugazi. We'll see how that plays out. But then I think of Danny Moses down there in the Everglades in Florida. I've fished in the Everglades. It's lovely, by the way. You can get effing lost in the Everglades, but all these things come back to one thing, and that's how my mind works. Evergrande, which is something that Danny talked about years ago. I had never heard of it until Danny Moses talks about it. And now all of a sudden, this whole Chinese property thing, they say, guys, stop it. You're just grasping at straws. No, I'm not grasping at straws. This is happening in real time, Danny Moses. Hold on a second. First of all, I know craps is my favorite game and craps is your favorite game. I don't know about Dan. I know he he would partake, but I would never let him throw the dice because we would seven out immediately. I think we would you know, all agree. But Guy, I want to go to the crab table with you at some point. And if you see me having coffee, just know that there's Bailey's probably in that coffee. I'll just I'll say that. So this whole property sector, this has been going on for two or three years now at this point, kind of the slowdown, Country Garden, Evergrande, right? The one difference I will say, when their executives make a mistake, you never see them again or they go to jail, unlike the U.S. executives. That's a whole other episode that we can go through here. But the reason it's important is this. Evergrande employs over 100,000 people on top of the job that they have in the wealth management unit of moving people out of the lower class to middle class, having them put down payments on condos that are never going to get built, all this stuff. It has a massive wave effect. And so the confidence in the real estate industry is everything. This is their global financial crisis right here relative to what ours was, I believe, in you know 2006 and seven leading up to. And the reason that's important is because here we have oil in the mid 90s right now, the belief that China was going to be coming back. This is without China. Their economic growth right now is massively slowing down. And the reason this is important to understand is, I talk about all the time, where is the incremental growth coming from around the globe if it's not going to be the U.S. consumer? And so, yes, do, should people care? You should care just on market structure-wise that there's a lot of foreign ownership of these bonds that are all going to be worthless, which they tried to restructure and they can't. The chairman's missing, the CEO's in, in house arrest. All this stuff is going on. And there are many property companies, and you add them up, it is the most important thing to that economy. And that's why, Guy, that I think it's important to pay attention to. And again, the farther that China goes down this economic wormhole, so to speak, the more risk in my mind there is to some type of geopolitical conflict. Because as things get worse, what do countries tend to do? So whole nother episode, not my area of expertise. You're paying attention, you're connecting the dots, and I'm with you. And if you think about it, with the teen youth unemployment rate, probably north of 25%, if not higher than that, You wonder, how do you put people back to work? I mean, read your history books, folks. The way countries put people back to work is the unfortunate reason 
that I don't necessarily need to add. I'll add this, Dan Nathan, and you might be able to wax poetic because this is something you watch. The FXI is at a huge level here. This 26 level, which we're currently trading at, was a huge support level earlier in the spring. If we were to break the support that we've tested a couple times, you know, you have a chance for this thing to go down another 10, 15%. And then you have to ask yourself, what will that be on the back of? What will have triggered that? And to Danny's point, you might be staring at China's version of the GFC. We'll see how it plays out. But I will tell you, Dan Nathan, their currency, the yuan, the weakness that we've seen is clearly, I think, flashing red, but that's just me. The FXI is an interesting ETF. When you think about the three largest holdings, Tencent, Alibaba, Medellin, they make up about 25%. Those are all obviously web sort of names. There's China Construction Bank, there's Industrial and Commerce Bank, and then you get Baidu and, and NetEase and JD. And so there's a lot of like kind of digital names, which we just know they don't have access you know, anymore to like overseas markets. It's a really big bet on that kind of middle class that Danny mentioned that is so levered to real estate right now. So if you think about it, it is this kind of circular consumer trade and you throw those other two banks in there, they must have a lot at stake with all this too. So the FXI definitely looks vulnerable. And I guess if I want to bring it back to our shores and all the themes that Danny mentioned about China and the leverage and the real estate system, things are not getting better here with commercial real estate either. And Guy, you mentioned the HYG, the the high yield index. If you look at the JNK, the, the junk bond ETF, those things are dead in the water. And when you look at just taking it another level and I want to get to Danny just mentioned Q3 earnings are going to start. They're going to start with the banks. And we'll talk a little bit about what Jamie Dimon had to say earlier this week to the Times of India. Look how badly the BKX is down 15% in just like a couple months. Look at the KRE is down nearly 18% in just a couple months. And so Jamie Dimon, and we could say Jamie's crying a little bit here, but I think the headlines that we read before we saw the video of what he had to say, the headlines looked far worse, said something like 7% Fed funds could be in the cards and the world is not ready for it. So I think that's a little bit of a theme that that guy you've been pushing now for a few months here. But when I think about these bank stocks and I think about how poorly they trade and what they are going to have to say, okay, so the IPO window opened up, they all broke price. M&A, what's going on there? Who knows? You know, held to maturity, mark to market, you know, on these treasury portfolios only got worse. So I look at the banks and I'm like, what the hell are we going to hear in mid-October from these banks that are going to make you want to go buy stocks? And we were talking about the stock market yesterday that was trading at three-month lows, the S&P and the NASDAQ, and they caught a bid late in the day and they went up, the S&P went up 50 handles in a straight line on no news. I think there's a lot of folks trying to defend this here, but I cannot imagine when we get to Q3 earnings, unless the market is discounting it unless we already sell off further into it we are trading at technical levels a 200 day moving average then maybe we rally out of it but again i'll just highlight what we've heard danny carmax workday today micron what jamie diamond in two weeks or two and a half weeks in front of his earnings what he has to say what the hell is going to be good and here's another one apple's trading down today they got the new iphone pro 15 whatever guy supposedly that thing gets really hot and they're having problems there whoa 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 what, what does that mean? It's getting hot. It's getting hot when you're using battery. Battery. Yeah, the battery's getting the, hot. Oh, it, <clears throat> it, it actually, it warmed. The phone gets yeah. physically warm. gets yeah. hot. Yeah. And I want to mention one thing about this. This is really important. You're telling me when this phone is being made, this is, again, like Danny just said, it's the most important quarter. Every iPhone that they release is the most important iPhone when you think about it. When the stock was trading on iPhone 6 or 7 at 15 times earnings, maybe it was less important. But now at 30 times or 27, where the hell, hell it is, with mid-single digits earnings and sales growth, it, it, it is that much more important. These guys know that when they're shipping that phone and they have a few weeks back, they know this phone's getting hot. But they said, you know what? Go with it. I'm, I'm just telling you, they know. And these are issues. You ever see these things heat up? There's been different times when these things have been blowing up and stuff like that. So I'm not trying to create any sort of like issue. But that stock, again, is down 15% from its recent highs. 15% on $3 trillion market cap. That's a number there. Should, should I not be charging my Apple device overnight? Nah, you're fine. You're like on an iPhone 6 or something like that. You're great. Yeah. You mentioned a few words, and I hearken back to the great Archimedes who said, give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum with which to place it, and I will move the world. All words that you used over the last couple of minutes, Dan Nathan, and 
It's all about leverage. I love leverage in the system. And Danny's been talking about this. It's easy getting in that leverage. It's hard getting out. Danny's got a, you, and I'll say this, you've had a bug up your ass and I love it when you get that. I'm not sure what type of bug, but I, there's certain words you get a Pavlovian response with Danny Moses. And one of them, for example, if I were just to say, blurt out CarMax, and that's just going to make you crazy. Now this stock, for those playing our home game, I think this stock was north of 150 bucks in the fall of 2021. Again, not that it necessarily matters, but I just pointed out, I think Danny at its low, we traded down to about what? I don't know, 52 bucks or so recently, traded up to 75, 80, and now here we are. But this is one of those things that it's a trading stock for sure. The business doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. Well, it's a it's a great company. It's a great franchise. They've been around. They've been through cycles before. It's funny. All the used car companies were trading up in the recent days because of the auto strike, which I always find oh, the auto strike is going to end at some points. So, oh, you're going to have to go buy cars that are out there. No one's going to make new cars. They extrapolate forward three years on what may be resolved in 25 days. Anyway. CarMax, bring it back to the banks and everything else. What we've been talking about, funding costs, cost of auto loans, cost of mortgages, consumer credit quality, kind of stuff that's out there. This was the microcosm of it. Everyone should read their press release, whether you're invested in CarMax or not. I don't care if you're long or short, go read it. They're telling you what's happening. They're buying cars for less and they're buying fewer cars. In their auto finance, they're giving out fewer loans and the loans are giving out are at higher spreads. They're seeing credit quality deterioration. Again, nothing cataclysmic. That stock was due, obviously, if you look on the chart, Carter would have probably said that was a sell, I'm going to guess. But that's it. And bring it back to the banks for a second. We've forgotten the kind of this rate move, what it really means, because, oh, Silicon Valley ended up, got rescued. It's okay. Remember, there's still a lot of these banks that are out there that have these issues on mark-to-market potential losses with rates moving higher. And you have JP Morgan out there. You mentioned Diamond making comments in general that we could see rates at 7% and we're looking at stagflation in the face. What are they doing? They're going out and offering 5 and 6% in some cases to attract big money to come into the bank right now. Again, I think the banks are dead money. If you have to own one, I do think it is JP Morgan, but look underneath. The lag effect is over, people. The consumer is starting to get hit. That's why I believe the Fed is done. They're going to start to see this data is going to start to work its way through the system. Here. Yeah, and I would just add this, just looking at CarMax here and looking at the valuation it trades, looking at the margin they make. Danny, and you say this all the time about a stock picker's market. Go look at AutoNation. It trades at similar revenue base, double the margin, and it trades at a, a massive discount. This stock's been a great performer. I think some of the things that you just mentioned, some of the trends, Danny, a, a month and a half ago, I think when they reported, they hinted that, but the stock had already taken off dramatically. So it's retraced a bunch of that parabolic move. But to me, if you're looking at CarMax and you're saying, okay, I see that. And maybe it sticks around for a couple more quarters and, and things get normalized. Maybe AutoNation looks interesting too on a relative basis. I'll just throw that out there because the valuation disparity is, is nuts in my opinion. Dan, what do they say when you trigger people? What do they say? You, you get tri people triggered. You All right, so I'm going to do this again to Danny because I, I reside in his head. So I mentioned CarMax. I got that response. So here's I'm going to say a name now. Watch. The, unfortunately, the folks can't see this, but I'll narrate. Look into Porter's camera. By the way, I'm in Porter Collins' office in Planet Houston right now. Anyway, please continue, guys. Okay, here you go. Get ready, Danny. I'm ready. I'm looking right in the camera. Ryan Cohen. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, it's good so, news, everybody. GameStop announced that Ryan Cohen, effective immediately, is their CEO. Now, this was the founder of Chewy, which, by the listen, great company. Great job. I find this guy to be a bit fugazi. I got to tell you something. When he bought those deep out of the money calls and then decided he was going to exercise them and then told everybody who's there's something that listen i'm not saying well, it's illegal no no, no but it's yeah. all part of the same thing that's yes. all part well, of this before stick. danny gets going have you guys seen this chewy chart this stock was trading in june at 40 dollars. it's trading below 18 dollars. it has not seen an uptick i'm not lying it has not seen an uptick in a month. And this guy keeps bouncing around from meme stock to meme stock. So it's it just very odd to me. So Danny, well, light yeah. this thing up here. Because yeah, listen, I think everyone's excited about the movie, which has obviously nothing to do with the stock. I'm sure the movie's going to be entertaining. There's no question. So he remember the CEO was removed a few months ago. We got one tweet on that. The CFO resigned, got no news on that other than a one-line press release. They reported a quarter. They had a loss. Most of the money they made in the quarter was from investing in U.S. Treasuries. Good move. They had a $100 million buyback still outstanding. They've yet to buy back any stock. Ryan Cohen is being investigated by the SEC for what the Guy just mentioned about the trading in Bed Path and Beyond. And what does he do? He's, he's executive chairman, and now he becomes 
acting CEO, to which he says he will still be doing other endeavors outside of GameStop. But what you didn't get today was an update on the business. What you didn't get was any type of clarity. And the stock is now flat after being up 8% pre-market. I landed in Houston. I came straight to Porter's house. By the way, he's got a great setup here. Porter Collins. Porter I mean, Collins, he's right. Porter, so, Co- Porter Collins. I, we talked about first school thing I pies, crew, good-looking man, uh, the whole thing. Yeah, he's got a good package going on. So anyway, so I said, did you shorten any GameStop yet? He looked at me and... He's as we speak. I think it was obviously higher than here. So my point is that this is there's this is a sell in the news type of event. I stick with my thesis that it's a show me story, and until they show that they can make money on a sustainable basis, I'm, Danny, I'm staying with it. There's a yeah. chance that this guy might be the kiss of death. Bed Bath went to zero. Chewy's trading at an all time low. Might go to zero. GameStop before this whole something kitty thing, whatever the hell was going on a couple of years ago, was basically a zero. You know what I mean? I don't know, man. Like this does not look like the sort of thing that you want to chase. And the fact is, Danny, you've been tracking these meme stocks for years, and you really, I think the idea is that it's just the psychology of the retail trader. The fact that the stock is not trading up. If this was a year and a half ago, this stock would have been up 25% or something like that. So it feels like they've broken. I right, Listen, I agree with that. You mentioned banks real quick. The KRE feels like it's going to round trip. We saw the move lower in the spring on the back of Silicon Valley Bank and some of the other banks. You had then the significant move higher in the absence of bad news. It feels as though we're going to round trip the entire move, which takes us back down so I think 34 and a half, 35 in the KRE. So stay tuned for that. We have reached, by the way, week four in the league where they play for pay. That's the NFL. That's a National Football League. Danny Moses coming off a stellar week three. What is week four looking like to you? Cashing tickets. Week four will begin with the September end to stock trading, to which it looks like I will be collecting from Tom Lee, which will go so to- why, so, so you shouldn't, there's a yeah. saying in gambling, you never I, touch I feel, money. I, I don't see a 4% rally happening okay. tomorrow. I'm just, listen, I've seen okay. stranger things, but please. Exactly. I'll close the loop on that. So that will be going, hopefully if I do win, we'll be going to St. Jude's. CME has been involved. They're our sponsor. It's a great cause. And so I'm happy to send that their way when it comes. So Tom will be going to good use and I'm happy to make another bet where maybe I can at some point lose to you and I can give to your charity. But anyway, so four and one last week, guy, if you count the Thursday night game, which kind of doesn't count, but you know how I felt about that 49er giant game going into it. Started 0-2 in week one, two and one in week two, four and one in week three. I have three games this week. So Baltimore catching three. I'm going against Cleveland again for the third week in a row. Give me Lamar Jackson, three points anywhere he goes. I'm taking Baltimore at Cleveland. Cincinnati, I think has righted the ship. I think they looked really good in the second half last week. I see them keeping the momentum. Tennessee was so disappointing last week. I just think that team is just average. Cincinnati laying two at Tennessee. I like them. And then the Chargers. I think the Chargers got right with that win in Minnesota. Yes, questions on their defense, but at home against Vegas, who if you watch the Monday night game, I don't know if Garoppolo is going to play as a concussion protocol, but I feel like I'm laying six and a half at home here. Chargers, Baltimore, and Cincinnati are my picks this week, guy. We have the housekeeping portion of our show that we reached. By the way, well done by you. And I agree with you in terms of the Bengals riding the ship. I love everything about Joe Burrow. I love everything about Jamar Chase. I just like that team. I just like that team. I also like the Chargers. And I think, listen, Chargers got off to an awful start, but their offense can score with anybody that not named the Miami Dolphins. So I'm with you on that. And we'll see this Jet game. On Sunday night, prime time is going to be. If you're not a football fan, you just got to watch it for all the theater around. If you're a Broadway it's fan, if you if you like crazy. watching movies, it's going to be great. Yeah, for sure. But this is the housekeeping portion of our show, and I don't do this particularly well because I don't. What do we always say, Dan? The cheapest thing to do is pay attention. When it comes to this stuff, I'm not good at it, but you are. Listen, we're trying about find different ways to get our content out there. We've been doing YouTube for the better part of six months, and I think that some of the people like it. They actually like looking at our mugs, which is odd. So follow us on YouTube. That's Risk Social Media. That's the channel there. We post our podcast. I think on a slight delay because it takes a little bit more editing, but check out that. We got a lot of content there. And also, Guy, we got to get you and Danny on the Insta because we have a new team member, Timmy, and he is going to be dialing things up on the well, social. On the yeah. what? Did you uh, get us on the what? On the Insta. On the Insta. I need help. I, I, I actually have a handle. I just haven't never. We're gonna fi- we're gonna get it all figured out. So follow us at Risk Reversal 
media on Instagram, people. We're going to start putting uh, a whole host of Oh, Facebook. That's a Facebook property. That, that is a meta company guy. And then the last thing is bug the hell out of Amanda Diaz at contact at riskreversal.com. Uh, we love hearing your feedbacks, your questions. We hope to incorporate many of those kind of ideas that you have and good and bad feedback. So but we just want to make this better every week, people. So we appreciate you being with us. All right, Danny, guy, that was a lot of fun. Say hi to Porter down there in Houston, Danny, and then also stick around for my conversation and Guy's conversation with Ed Yardeni of Yardeni Research. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Dan, what's that big mountain where they have all those faces cut out in the rocks? Mount, Mount Rushmore? Is Dakota it one of the Dakotas? Yeah, I think it's actually South yeah. Dakota. Uh, it doesn't. What's the difference? Yeah. Dakota. The Dakotas. The Dakotas. I like. I haven't been there. It'd be a good yeah. trip. I mentioned that because in terms of the Mount Rushmore of market strategists, yeah. we have somebody that should be on that Mount Rushmore, and he comes in the form of Ed Yardeni. Ed, how are you? I'm humbled by your introduction. Ed, I'm just going to say this because you've been on CNBC for as long as I've been in the business. Guy and I have been fortunate to have you on the show that we do, CNBC's Fast Money. You've been a really relevant market participant, market strategist. I think one of the unique things, and Guy and I say this on our show that we do right here all the time, some of the best strategies strategists have figured out how to talk about the markets out of both sides of their mouth. And I think you're one of those guys in, in our prep, we were reading your research. We saw some of your hits of late. You don't pull any punches. You, you don't mind being tactical. You have a larger framework and we're going to get to all that. But I think that guy goes into your kind of Mount Rushmore assessment. 100% of Mr. because it's easy to blow hot and cold, depending on what the market's doing. It's not as easy to have views and stick with them when things are moving against you. And if you're old enough, you remember there used to be a commercial when EF Hutton talks people listen. You started there and I want to talk about your background, but now it's when Ed Yardeni talks, people listen. So Ed, talk about you went from Cornell to Yale, EF Hutton, where I think you were the chief economist, a huge job at the time. Speak to your background a little bit. I did go to Yale and for graduate school. As a matter of fact, I graduated six years after Janet Yellen graduated. We both studied under Nobel Prize winner James Tobin. He was a great teacher, a little bit hard to understand. And the only way that I really think I got through his courses and through Yale is Janet Yalen, six years before or a few years before, took his course and took copious notes with wonderful charts done with rulers and the whole thing. And so I don't know that I would have gotten a PhD from Yale if it wasn't for Janet Yalen. So I owe her a great deal. I really appreciate what she did. We did come out of it with different perspectives. I tend to be more conservative. She tends to be more liberal, but that's baseball. You got teams with different track records and different styles. Then I was at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York for a year. And I have to tell you, it was a pretty depressing experience. I was in a room with no windows. I had, I think, short sleeve white shirts and I kept my ties in the, in the office there. And I wrote memos that I think may still be somewhere in one of those files that was probably moved to the basement somewhere, maybe near the vault of gold, I suspect. But suddenly out of the blue, I got a call from a headhunter who said there's a job at EF Hutton, and I took it and 
It was to work on the financial side of the economy for the chief economist. And he was very nice. After a couple of years, he decided to leave. And at the age of 28, I got promoted to be chief economist of a major Wall Street firm, which was great. And then I just couldn't keep a job. I went to Prudential Beach Securities. Then after that, I went to C.J. Lawrence, which became Deutsche Bank. Then I went back to Prudential Beach Securities. Then I went and worked for an independent money manager for a couple of years. So I learned something about how hard it is to actually manage money. And uh, instead of giving advice, I was taking advice. And it's, uh, it's a different approach, but it was very insightful. And then in 2007, I went off on my own, started my own company, Yardeni Research. We've been virtual since 2007. We haven't had an office. So I tell everybody since the pandemic, welcome to our world. Well, talk to us a little bit about the founding of Yardeni Research. You said you were at a few different shops, a, a couple really big ones. What was it about the apparatus, the Wall Street apparatus, the way that they talk to institutional clients, the way they pitch their outlooks and, and the like that led you to go fully independent? And what did that unlock for you? As I said, before I went fully independent, I worked for a money management firm um, in Akron, Ohio, and worked there for two years uh, but at the same time, I continued to write my, my, my research reports on the economy, on the financial markets, both from an economist standpoint and a strategist standpoint. So I combined both perspectives, which I think is fairly unusual on the street. Anyways, much to my surprise, a lot of my former accounts signed up for this service that I had when I worked for Oak Associates in Akron, Ohio. And after two years, I decided that's what I wanted to do full time. That's what I really love. That's what I enjoy very much watching the economic indicators come out, the financial indicators come out and uh, coming up with a conclusion of what it means for the economy, what it means for the financial markets. Let's talk about that because you mentioned you were in an office without windows. There are a lot of people that think most of these Fed officials have been in the dark now for the last 15 years. But it's not, listen, not an easy job. I get it. But where are we right now in terms of Fed policy in terms of the bond market? Because you watch this closer than I do, and I watch it pretty close, but the moves in the bond market over the last few weeks, let alone the last year and a half, have been staggering. Where are things right now, in your opinion? Yeah, it's been, a it's been certainly a debacle in the bond market. I guess we got down to almost like 0.5% back in the pandemic year of 2020. And here we are. Last I looked, we were at 4.6%. So it's been an an extraordinary bear market, the bond market. I think in some ways what we're seeing here is a normalization on steroids and speed. It's happening at the speed of light. What was called the new normal was really the new abnormal between the great financial crisis back in 2008 through the great virus crisis in 2020. And interest rates were near zero. There was a lot of quantitative easing, buying of securities, by central banks. And the central banks were frustrated, believe it or not, that they couldn't get the, the, the inflation rate up to 2%. Beware of what you wish for. Oh, I, uh, uh, hold on, hold on. <laughs> once. I can't believe you just said that because, and I want, I don't, listen, this is for you, not for me, but I've said for years that the Fed has been begging for inflation. And it's true. You can go back and look. And maybe begging's a bit hyperbole, but they've been asking for it. I've said, be careful what you wish for, because for most Americans, if they were to hear that, they're like, what are you talking about? We've been living in inflation in my entire lifetime. So the frustration, I think, associated with that when people on the street, when most of our fellow citizens hear that, to me has to just be beyond aggravating. It's academics gone wild. The, Fe the Federal Reserve many years ago used to be basically run by bankers and lawyers. And uh, these were very practical people. And then over the years, uh, macro economists took over and they just, they're like mad scientists. They have these theories and they said, oh my God, we got this great lab called the Fed. Let's experiment. Let's experiment with the economy. Let's experiment with our new theory of the Phillips curve. Uh, let's experiment with quantitative easing. And so they've been experimenting. We've been like lab rats when it comes to the scientists at the Fed. And a lot of what they've been doing, I guess their heart's in the right place. I guess they, they meant well, but it's all meddlers in economic affairs. If they don't leave it to the marketplace, then they're probably going to screw it up, which is 
basically what they've done. I say this as well. History is littered with disastrous outcomes born of good intentions. And I'm not saying any of these people are bad people or bad intentions, but the outcome's been disastrous. And you, know, you can put this at the feet of Chairman Greenspan, but a lot of this is Ben Bernanke. And I'm going to throw this out. You do not have to agree with me if you say, guy, you're an asshole. Believe me, you won't be the first person and you won't be the last. But I didn't I've know we were this. speaking French on the uh, program. You know what? French ahead. is allowed here. Ben Bernanke, and, and I was a commodities trader for years, so I would submit he put on the biggest prop trade in the history of mankind in terms of what he did with the balance sheet, what he did in terms of just the bond, per all those different things, which is fine. I say this all the time as well. It's really easy to get into a prop trade. Anybody can get into a prop trade. It's getting out of it that's the hard part. And I think if that's what he wanted to do, if that's what the, to your point, the laboratory he wanted to play in, and those were the Erlenmeyer flasks that he was using, that's fine. But he should have been forced to see it through to the end. And to allow him, again, just my opinion, but to allow him to walk away from that prop trade and then go be an advisor at a Citadel and other places where, I got to tell you something, you think they really gave a shit what he thought? They were there to pick his brain. What are the soft spots in terms of what you just created? That, to me, it's not criminal, but it's really close. Guy, yeah, life isn't fair. <laughs> I, I, I was hoping you were going to say, Guy, you're an asshole. You can say that. No. No, but what no, are your thoughts I, on that? And again, you're talking about these are academics. They're not traders. So again, putting on a position is one thing, but getting out of it, which, by the way, that's what we're in the midst of right now, is really difficult to do. Absolutely. And it's, it's shocking to see what bond yields have done. But with the benefit of hindsight, it's not that surprising. You go from a period that uh, I describe as the new abnormal from the great financial crisis to the great virus crisis. And then suddenly the pandemic happens and you wind up with an inflation problem, more inflation than, than you wanted. Suddenly you're well above your 2% target. And suddenly the Fed has to flip around and reverse all that. And to think that it could be done without pain, without distress. The amazing thing is how quickly it's been reversed. As you said, prop trades are hard to, to, to manage, especially once you're trying to reverse them. Yeah, but Ed, there is a case to be made here that between your GFC to the virus crisis, as you call it, those were pretty and very different sort of crises. There were some potential outcomes that we just couldn't know what happened. And, and I guess what we learned from the prior crises, which came seven years prior to the, the financial crisis, is they only had a few pitches. And, and so then they got a little bit more iterative in that period in 08, 09, 10, and they just left their foot on the pedal for too long. And I guess you could say the same thing about 2021. And so when they finally acknowledged it, and I think the point about inflation, yes, housing, education, healthcare, those are things that had been going up greater than that, greater than wage growth and, and every other measure that you want to look at. But they didn't have too many other choices, in my opinion, because on top of the health crisis, and we don't have to relitigate this, but on top of the health crisis, if we had a credit crisis, a financial crisis, who knows what, we could have been back in the Stone Ages. So let's flash forward now, though. Here's Fed Chair Powell, and, and Guy, back in 17 and 18, and again, I sit next to him every day on Fast Money and the like, and you were giving him some decent props when he wanted to try to normalize interest rates. He wanted to try to reverse this nearly 20-year sort of experiment, as you say. What do you say? about how he's doing. We can all agree that the transitory thing was a bit much in 2021. How do you grade what they're doing now? And what do you think the likelihood is that we actually do normalize interest rates and we get to a point and, and then maybe we're out of that experiment to some degree. Maybe they do land the plane and maybe it's something slightly worse than a soft landing, but maybe that's the medicine that we all need to take right now. Yeah, actually, I am in the optimistic camp. I'm a Fed watcher like a lot of Wall Street economists. You have to watch the Fed. Investors have to watch the Fed. You really can't be an investor without understanding what the Fed is doing to the economy and doing to your portfolio. So I'm a Fed watcher. And uh, most Fed watchers, uh, sort of on a knee-jerk basis, have the attitude that the Fed's always wrong, can't do anything right. And so the best thing to do is just criticize them. I happen to think that this time around, they may actually uh, get it. The Fed realized that they made a mistake by not raising interest rates sooner. Instead of starting in uh, March of 2022, they probably should have started at least at the end of uh, 2021. A lot of the inflation was pandemic related. It was related to the shock and aftershocks of the pandemic. I think it's turning out that it is in fact transitory, certainly on the good side. And just wait, the next few months, I think rent inflation is going to come down pretty sharply. So I'm looking at the summary of economic projections that the Federal Open 
market committee put out their latest SEP, their, their summary of economic projections. And I happen to agree with it. I, I think uh, that inflation is going to continue to come down. I believe that the economy is going to continue to grow at a slower pace. And I think they actually did a pretty good job of communicating to the markets that, you know what, maybe we don't really need to raise interest rates much more. Maybe what we can accomplish what we want from here on by being restrictive simply by keeping interest rates at these levels for higher, longer into next year. I think that's a pretty smart uh, approach and I welcome it. I don't criticize it. Do you think there's a chance, again, if we do see CPI going back down, we, we see some of the readings ticking back up today as we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, crude oil's up 93 and a half dollars or something like that. And, and so I think that's making some folks a, a little bit worried, especially if you're believing in the higher for longer. But is there a scenario, I guess the soft landing scenario, Ed, in, in your mind is that inflation comes down again, it, this little even resurgence ends up being transitory. Let's say there's nothing really big on the geopolitical front in China and Taiwan that would cause a similar sort of inflationary fears that we saw with Russia invading Ukraine last year. Is there a scenario where they could literally just start gradually lower? I, listen, I know the Fed funds futures are pricing in, what, 75 basis points of cuts next year. Is that a likely scenario in your opinion? Because they've been wrong. We were supposed to have cuts this year, right? They were very wrong. And I, think, I, think it's, I think it's a reasonable scenario. I've... Uh... I've actually been arguing since early last year that we're in a recession. I've just been saying it's a rolling recession. It's not one that's taken the entire economy down, but it's rolling through different sectors at different times. So it started out rolling into housing. Then because there was a buying binge after the lockdowns were lifted, we all went out. We, we needed to go shopping. We needed to release dopamine in our brains to make ourselves feel good. So we went on a goods buying binge and the retailers ran out of inventory, ordered more. It all got clogged up in the ports and they couldn't get enough trucks. And by that time they got it delivered, uh, let's say in late 2021, early 2022, the consumer had said, you know, no mas, I've had enough. We're going traveling. We're going to Europe, but we're going to go to the national parks. And so they, they didn't buy the goods. And so the retailers had to uh, discount it. And we, so we've had some goods deflation actually for durable goods. Now I think the rolling recession is rolling in commercial real estate. I think everybody recognizes that, but I don't think it's going to take the economy down. I think the economy is resilient enough to continue to grow. So the key to all this is definitely inflation. If inflation just gets stuck here, doesn't come down more, and the Fed has no choice but to raise interest rates and cause a recession, that's one scenario. That's not my most likely scenario. My, my most likely scenario is that inflation will continue to moderate. We know that rent inflation is coming down sharply. We know that there's been a lot of multifamily residential construction, particularly in the South and the West. And suddenly in August, there was a big drop in multifamily housing starts, I think that's a tip-off that rent inflation is going to come down, maybe in some areas, decline, deflate. And that's going to show up big time in the CPI and the so-called consumption deflator. So if that happens, I think that'll offset a lot of problems. I, I think it'll offset uh, one of the biggest problems we have is the mounting uh, federal deficit, the profligate fiscal policy that's embedded in our system right now. Yeah, we can talk about that. But since you mentioned the consumer, let's continue down this line. I've learned this sort of the hard way doing fast money all these years. But what I've learned is never underestimate the U.S. consumers want to spend. They will spend just about under any circumstances. The problem that I think that I'm seeing, and please push back, but now you have credit card debt north of a trillion dollars in, a, in an extraordinarily fast-moving, rising interest rate environment. Not to suggest we haven't been able to withstand 5.5%. That's not the point. It's the velocity with which we got here is the point. What does it mean, if anything? You know, you hear about the health of the U.S. consumer, and I think a lot of times people come on and just say it as a throwaway line because they know they're not going to be challenged. You happen to do the work on the back of it. What is your sense about the U.S. consumer? I, I think you're right to be concerned about consumer credit, credit cards, but very few people actually uh, borrow money with their credit cards. Or maybe I don't know uh, a lot of people that do that. A lot of people use it for just convenience, and and then they, they pay most of it off or, or, uh, or a lot of it or maybe all of it off. So I don't know that we really have much history with uh, – consumer credit card debt going to a new high, and suddenly that causes the consumers to stop spending. Uh, really what stops consumers from spending is when they lose their jobs, when we see uh, the unemployment rate going up. So looking ahead here, there, there are some clear headwinds for the consumer. They have loaded up on a lot of consumer credit. I have to acknowledge that. It's, it's the fact. 
And there is a student loans issue where those that were deferred now have to start uh, paying. And then there's the big one, the notion that the pessimists have been pushing, the hard landers have been pushing, and that is that consumers have all this excess saving that they accumulated during the pandemic and that they're almost spent it all. And once it's all gone, they're just going to have to stop spending. And I don't agree with that. I think it's, it's not clear that they spent all of it. Uh, some of it may actually still be sitting in uh, demand deposits and money market funds as a precautionary balances, just in case things unfold again in an adverse way. Uh, but it's employment, it's disposable income, it's inflation-adjusted wages that really drive the consumer. And employment's still growing. Uh, job openings are still high compared to pre-pandemic uh, levels. And wages are, in fact, since the beginning of the year, believe it or not, rising faster than prices. I get a lot of pushback. People say, well, that's not the way it feels to me. But all I can tell you is the macro data shows wages are rising faster than prices. And by the way, they've been rising faster than prices, especially for lower income people, which is a great thing. So it's a positive. There, there is a tendency to focus on all the negatives out there, but there's a lot that keeps the economy going and it keeps proving that it's resilient. Fair enough. I'll just summarize and synthesize. You're saying, in fact, a trillion dollars now of credit card debt is more a function of the way people spend money. Obviously, we've been headed that way. Credit card transactions, totally get it. What would be a concerning factor? Because around the edges, we're starting to see delinquency rates tick higher. Is that, I know you watch it, but how closely should we be watching it? The issue is whether we're going to get a credit crunch out of all this. We've had this inverted yield curve that's been basically predicting a recession. And what yield curves really predict is that if the Fed keeps raising interest rates, something will break in the financial system, and then that will morph into an economy-wide credit crunch where even good borrowers won't be able to borrow. And it's those credit crunches that in the past have caused recessions. Uh, the yield curve so far has gotten it right. We've had a banking crisis back in March, but the Fed uh, played whack-a-mole and stopped that pretty quickly with a liquidity facility. But we're not out of the woods yet. We're going to have problems in the commercial real estate market. We're going to have problems in the auto sector. So I, I think this is going to be, as I said, a, a rolling recession, maybe a rolling credit crunch, but not an economy-wide credit crunch, not an economy-wide recession. At least that's my most likely scenario. I'm very cognizant of the risks that this thing just unfolds in a way that uh, does, in fact, cause an economy-wide recession and uh, all sorts of uh, problems for uh, individual investors, individual uh, households, as well as the broad economy. And we'll talk about the market in a second, but let me just, last question in terms of yield curves. We mentioned the inversion of the yield curve, understanding that it's not the inversion that's the scary part. It's the re-steepening is typically when things start to go a little pear-shaped. So we went from flat to a 105 basis points, down to about 40-something, back to 105, 110. As we're sitting here now, I think we're either side of a 55 basis, whatever, we're re-steepening is my point. Is there a concern on this bear steepening? You know what that means. I'll explain it. The, the yield curve is steepening with 10-year yields basically going higher, as we addressed earlier. Is that concerning at all? It is concerning because actually it's uh, quite unusual. Usually in the past when the yield curves in, inverted, it meant that uh, somebody was willing to buy, let's take an example, a 10-year bond at 4% yield uh, when they could uh, just as well buy a two-year note at uh, 5%. Why would somebody in their right mind uh, give up 5% to buy 4%? They obviously don't think that the two-year yield is going to stay up here and they think it's going to come down. And they wait for something to break, something breaks, and then you get the credit crunch and you get the recession. And then the yield curve starts to ascend. But how does it do it in the past? In the past, it did it with short-term rates coming down faster than long-term rates. And that would actually set us up for a, a recovery. This is a very unusual situation where the inversion seems to be un unwinding or disinverting, if there is such a word, where the disinversion is occurring as the bond yield is going up while the two years isn't going up as much. And I, I am concerned about that. The one thing I'm concerned about is that I came up with the phrase bond vigilantes back in 1983. They, they've been out of it for a while, but I'm concerned that they're not happy. They're not happy. They're, they're happy with what the Fed is doing, I think. I think they do think that if the Fed's going to be restrictive, they might bring it down. But I think what they're not happy about is fiscal policy, the tremendous uh, deficits that we're having. Uh, to have a $2 trillion deficit 
over the past 12 months, an economy that's growing is very disturbing. And so supply of secure of treasuries has really not been a problem in the past because you had the deficits widening and recessions. Here, this deficit is widening in an economy that's doing well, and that's disturbing to the bond markets. We do face this risk of the bond vigilantes saddling up and not really objecting to monetary policy, but objecting to fiscal policy, raising interest rates to levels that cause things to break. Uh, again, that's not my most likely scenario, but it is a possible scenario. All right. Let's talk about that market outlook, the stock market outlook, because pretty interesting today. We're recording this Wednesday into the close. The market was down a little more than 1%. It's been like a 7.5% slide, I think, from its peak a month and a half ago to this morning's lows. And we seem to recover. And now we're up on the day screaming into the close a little bit. You were calling for a tactical move down to 4,200 or something. That was a level Guy and I had been thinking about too. There was also that kind of May breakout after that long consolidation that we had in April and May. Was that enough for you? And, and how are you thinking about it? Because I was reading one of your last notes and you think that we get back towards 4,600, maybe by year end. So you're calling for a Q4 rally here. I was an outlier at the beginning of the year, really at the end of the previous year where I predicted 4,600 by the end of, of th this year. And I kind of, I felt fairly strongly about that. I felt there was way too much pessimism. I, in late October, I suggested the October 12th low might've actually been the bottom in the, in the bear market and that we're starting a, a bull market. Now I see a lot of people saying, all we've had is a bounce in a bear market and the bear market's still intact. I'm not in that camp. I think we started a bull market on October 12th. I think there was way too much pessimism then. I think there's pessimism is building up uh, once again. I did think we get to 4,600 by the end of this year. We got there really by the end of uh, July 31st, we were just a tad under uh, 4,600. And uh, I thought about it and I said, you know what? That's probably it for a while. At the beginning of the year, the consensus was the first half was gonna be the, the, the lousy half and the second half would be better. And I thought maybe it's actually the reverse. And so far that's the case. September has been a, it lived up to its reputation of being one of the worst months uh, around. October can also be a, a difficult month. But I view this as uh, a month for uh, apple picking. Things, things have fallen off the trees. And unless they're rotten, I think you can pick some of them up. And I do think that the market's being weighed down by oil prices going up, by bond yields going up. That's quite more uh, fundamental issues. But on top of that, we've got uh, the UAW strike. We've got the potential government shutdown. I, I think the, the strike and the shutdowns will be resolved within the next few weeks. I'm counting on seeing some pretty good inflation news up ahead here, excluding energy. I don't expect that the price of oil is going to go to 100 to 120. The Saudis would be committing a suicide if they did that, because then you would get a worldwide economic uh, recession. And the Saudis have committed themselves to this vision uh, 2030. They want the price of oil to be high, but not so high that it causes a recession. So I, I think uh, the, the price of oil will settle down. And I think the, the, the bond deal will settle down as we get some more signs that inflation really is uh, moderating. If all that falls into place, and I, to quote Jerome Powell, I may have a, a very narrow path to, to make that to see that all happen, then I think we could have a year-end rally getting us back uh, to or close to 4,600. And then I think next year could actually be a pretty good year. It, it's going to be a horrible year politically with the election coming up. It's going to be nasty as politics have turned out. But I think the economy is actually going to do all right. And I'm optimistic. I'm using 5,400 for the S&P 500 by the end of next year. If the economy is okay next year and 5,400 is in the cards, then Joe Biden's going to be president of the United States. I'm just going to draw that line right there because there's no way that those things don't happen. Because right now, when you look at his polling on the economy, it's just astounding how bad it is. And it's interesting because Guy and I, we sit here. We, what do you say, Guy? You grew up in the Wall Street. What can go wrong will yeah, go wrong. Yeah, and so that's, we know there's a lot of cheerleaders out there every day, no matter what the market's doing, green or red or this or whatever. We're trying to be little Sherpas here, trying to figure out some of that sort of stuff. But if you tell me 5,400, I can tell you another thing that's going to be true about the political landscape there. That, that's interesting to me. Before we get to your retail offering, which you have, which I'm fascinated about, you can't talk about what's going on here in the United States, and I know you don't do this, in a vacuum. What's going on around the world is fascinating, specifically, and I want your thoughts on this. Japan has been in this experiment now for three or four decades. 
quasi-successful, whatever. We can debate how well it's gone. But things have been moving extraordinarily quickly there in terms of their bond market, specifically now in terms of their currency, which as we sit here, dollar-yen is approaching 150. I think that's when the bells and whistles start to go off, and I think things are concerning. I think the Bank of Japan has a problem here. I think their currency is a problem. I think they're trying to support their currency. I think they're doing it in the form of probably selling U.S. treasuries. All this has impact, though. Thoughts on the importance of Japan? I think Japan is important to the extent that when you look at uh, what moves the U.S. bond yield, uh, it's the, the German yield and the Japanese yield. The bond market is a global marketplace. And uh, as you suggested, the, the Japanese are in a position to buy and sell treasuries. They've been uh, very big players in that marketplace, so they can very much have, have an impact there. Clearly, if they don't want their currency to collapse, uh, they need to raise their interest rates. But their policy has also been pretty convoluted. They've been stuck to this zero or near zero interest rate policy. Look, th their economy is uh, weighed down by their demographics. They've got a very old uh, demographic uh, profile. And as a result of that, a lot of things uh, follow, which is they've uh, basically been trying to prop up their economy with ultra easy monetary policy. But now, uh, again, beware of what you wish for, because they've been wishing for inflation to go up because they had deflation. And, and now that it's up, uh, it only gets worse if, if the yen continues to depreciate. So Japan may, may be a source of uh, trouble for our bond market which then would be a source of trouble for our stock market and our economy. Yeah, Guy and Danny have been pointing this out, I feel like, for months. Here we are at that 150 level, and if you just look at a 40-year chart, you get through those kind of mid-90s levels or whatever, and we're all looking at the same thing. All right, Ed, you talk about wishing. For our listeners uh, who wish to get your research, we know that you talk to some of the smartest investors on the planet, a lot of institutional investors, but where can like retail investors? They see you on CNBC every so often. You guys put some stuff out on social? Do you have an offering for retail investors? Yeah, we do actually. About a year ago, by popular demand, uh, we came up with uh, a research product for individual investors. It's not as in-depth as what we offer to institutional investors, but uh, it's in-depth enough, I think, that individual investors can find it abuse. Basically, what it does is just look, all these economic indicators are coming out all the time. Uh, look how they're moving the markets. Uh, what impact are they having on the market? And let's anticipate what the next batch of indicators might do. So it's very much an attempt to educate individual investors how important macroeconomics is to the financial markets. And so it's called, you, you can find it at yardennyquicktakes.com. It's a, it's a long address, but it's yardennyquicktakes.com, one word. That's fine. We'll put it in the show notes there. And I just Guy and I also do something called market call that's mrkt call that we do monday through thursday and we have uh, over the course of the last couple of years we've quoted his work on 100%. many on many occasions there so we but that's not doxing no right? that's basically giving that's giving him like a so hat a tip we're basically ed I learned these things. Yeah. You don't Doxing learn them is a because bad you keep thing, asking but, what they are. Yeah. Uh, but we'll put that link in the show notes and we'll be sure to link to more of your research on our market call and obviously here on the tape guy. High above Cayuga's waters, there's an awful smell. Maybe it's Cayuga's waters, Ed. Maybe it's Cornell. But listen, despite that and despite your undergrad, we appreciate having you here. Thanks. It's been an absolute privilege. Thank Thanks, you, Thanks, Ed. Ed. Thank you. All the best. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.